Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 426 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we're going in a different direction today. I've always appreciated Ed Stetzer, but particularly over these last few years, uh, we're going to go in a different direction. We're going to talk about things I don't usually talk about and won't for a long time. Um, The evangelical reckoning, QAnon, conspiracy theories, and why extremes are not the norm. Um, If you follow my writing, you know I'm a little bit concerned and have been for a number of years now about the extremism um, building in leadership and particularly church leadership. So we're going to talk about that today. And um, yeah, Ed Stetzer is the voice that I wanted to bring in to have that conversation. Today's episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can sign up for social media management and get 10% off your first year at promediafire.com slash carry. And by World Vision, sign up for their free web series, Right Side Up Soul Care with Danielle Strickland at worldvision.org slash carry. That's C-A-R-E-Y. So I'm going to uh, come back at the end of this episode when we're done and do the What I'm Thinking About segment and talk about how to lead with love. I know that sounds like all flowery and all that stuff, but I think it's really important. I've got five principles uh, that I think can really help you develop a voice that I hope will be helpful. At least these are the principles that I try to use in guiding my voice. So that's coming up at the end of the episode. And for those of you who uh, I know a lot of you know, Ed, if you don't, Uh, Ed Stetzer, PhD, serves as the Dean of the School of Mission, Ministry, and Leadership at Wheaton College. He is the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. He has planted, revitalized, and pastored churches, trained pastors, and church planters on six continents. He has two master's degrees, two doctorates. He's written hundreds of articles and is the Regional Director for Lausanne, North America. He's a contributing editor for Christianity Today, a columnist for Outreach Magazine. In addition, he's founding editor of The Gospel Project and hosts a national radio show, Ed Stetzer Live. And in his spare time, he has a family and sleeps, I think, some days. Anyway, Ed's one of those people whose output just completely uh, blows me away. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to go down a road we don't usually do. Uh, I would like any comments to be respectful, but uh, hopefully it's helpful, clarifying, and illuminating because here's the goal. The goal behind having this episode and doing what we're doing, what Ed and I are talking about, is to get us moving in the right direction and uh, fulfilling our mission and getting rid of the distractions and noise that can sometimes, uh, yeah, take us down and maybe get in, in the way of doing what we're trying to do. So here's a shocking fact for you. On average, people are spending two hours and 24 minutes a day on social media. That's a lot of time. So clearly, the people you want to reach, which is what we're about on this podcast, are on Facebook and Instagram. But here's a struggle. The algorithm is changing constantly. Design trends are shifting rapidly. And creating engaging content is hard work. Online growth is challenging. And that's where ProMedia Fire can help you. They have a dedicated social media team that will handle the strategy the design, the content creation, and actual posting for you. So with ProMedia Fire, you save time and grow online while their digital team does all the work. Complete social media management and digital growth is just a few clicks away. As a listener of this podcast, you receive 10% off your first year at ProMediaFire.com slash carry. And the deepest truths about living like Jesus often come from people who have been through a really difficult time. And uh, that's why World Vision has asked Danielle Strickland to put together a brand new series called Right Side Up Soul Care. 
And World Vision and Danielle will help you listen to the voices of leaders from around the world who have used their suffering and persecution to build and strengthen their faith. It's a free web series, and you can get it by going to worldvision.org slash carry. That's worldvision.org slash carry. Here's why they're doing it. They're really concerned about leaders and keeping you fresh for the long haul, as am I. And with all that said, let's dive into my conversation that I hope will be helpful and enlightening and maybe perspective giving with Ed Stetzer. Ed, I'm so glad uh, to be with you again today. Thanks for coming on. Well, technically I'm with you, so I'm excited to be with you today because it's your show. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> hey, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you've got like this nice step and repeat behind you. I, I was joking that uh, maybe you're being drafted, finally, right? Somebody saw the talent and they're like, yeah, totally, totally, you're going to play for us next season. Yeah, we had none of these things like last year, but now we've got these little logo things. Everything's a logo and I got to move to make sure it's not a logo. But yeah, 2020, 2021, everything's got a screen now. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, this has been quite a season for all of us and for you as well. Um, so I want to start with something positive because we're going to cover a lot of challenging areas today. Uh, what are some of the best things you've seen in the church or in leadership in general over, you know, the last year, year and a bit? I've seen a lot of churches uh, step up, stand out, you know, stand in the gap to seek to show and share the love of Jesus to their communities. I think, I think though, it's been a tough year for uh, the people who call themselves evangelicals. I think it's been a um, a year where many local churches, evangelical and others, were living on mission. And, you know, it's for someone who, you know, for 20 years been writing angsty blogs and podcasts and books about how the church needs to be on mission and leave the building and all that sort of stuff. And suddenly there was no choice. And churches, uh, many churches, I mean, there are always outliers that get the press and all this. But but what I've seen is so many churches step up and uh, really seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus in their community. And I think that's super encouraging. It hasn't been without cost, uh, but it's mm -hmm. been super encouraging to see. Oh, that's good to know. Uh, when you look, because you deal with a lot of students, graduate students mostly, but you're surrounded by students at Wheaton and at the Billy Graham, uh, you know, um, Institute, correct me uh, on that title. But, uh, Wheaton College, Billy Graham Center, but yeah, it's all good. Billy Graham Center. That's what I was looking for. Thank you. Um, what do you see in terms of hope for the next generation? Because it's mostly like we have a young listenership here for the most part. And there's a lot of, like, they're pretty much all Gen Z going through right now for undergrad. And then you get a lot of millennials who are in the graduate program at this point. So what are you, what are you seeing in the next generation? Yeah, we do see um, as, as Christian uh, practice and identification predominantly has declined, both in the U.S. and Canada, you see a lot of people who are sort of nominally Christian in their commitment and faith who no longer identify as that. Many of the nominals are becoming the nuns, you know, the N-O-N-E-S. And so with that, it has actually created a, um, among those who are using the name, the name Christian to describe and define themselves, who are seeking to live for the Lord, it actually makes it more countercultural. So one of the things that we've seen is, is that though uh, Gen Z millennials are less religious as a whole, just using the term of the research, you know, uh, that those who are seeking to be faithful to their understanding of the gospel, or really we could say that of other religions too, but they tend to be more so. Um, whereas, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and boomers before us, um, you know, you kind of, you know, people could kind of like be on the edges or maybe not in or not out. 
But I think one of the things you're finding with uh, millennials and Gen Zs is they tend to be out more, actually out more than they are in, but those that are in are in more than maybe they've ever been before. So it's a fascinating uh, contrast to see, but that shouldn't shock us. I think as we have lost and continue to lose our home field advantage, those who are going to follow Christ are going to stand out in the culture, and that's going to also encourage them to more intentionally follow Christ, because why not? If you're already in and you already hold these strange views, why not live it all out in your life as well? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, you and I both have ties to Canada. I live here. You married a Canadian. We've talked about that numerous times. But one of the things I've I've seen, particularly over the last 18 months, I feel like COVID just accelerated it, is the move to a post-Christian culture in America. So it's been sliding yeah. in Canada you could argue, pick the decade. It happened in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. But by the 90s, by the time I had moved into leadership, you know, you, Canada was for all intents and purposes a post-Christian culture. Talk to our Australian, New Zealanders, uh, you know, English friends, European friends. They've all been in post-Christian culture now for decades. But America seems to have really slid there. It's been sliding gradually, but the last five years, the last 18 months in particular— it seems that there's a bit of a cliff. Would you agree or disagree with that? Or because you mentioned the the separating, yeah. losing the home field advantage, all those things. Is that is that what's going on underneath that, Ed? Yeah, I think that's part of it. So there was a okay. real helpful article that uh, Ross Douthat wrote for the New York Times. He's a, actually a former evangelical, now practicing Catholic, uh, New York Times columnist. And he wrote an article that really, I think, speaks well to this. People could Google it. It's called Waking Up in 2030. And that what's happened, he wrote this in 2020. What's happened is, is that the, of course, the pandemic is, didn't happen in isolation, right? We saw right. racial injustice. We saw economic collapse. We saw, uh, you know, and then then rebound. And, and, and we saw a political division, unprecedented political division. And what he is, what he writes about in the article, and I think it's right on, is that this has accelerated social change. So, for example, where... Uh, the um, same-sex marriage uh, revolution, you know, you look from Stonewall into Obergefell was decades. Uh, the transgendered revolution is years. And so the acceleration of those things and some of the acceleration are things that I think as followers of Jesus, I would be um, in favor of. I th I'm thankful for a greater awareness of, uh, of issues of race that I saw after the murder of George Floyd. We actually saw Many evangelical pastors say, how can we learn more? And some of the books that were written by followers of Jesus just went number one New York Times bestseller when people said there's a reckoning. And they and then of course, there was a backlash to that. But but so I, I think that's a, that's a good thing, a greater awareness. On the other hand, there are parts of that acceleration, even on issues of race. We're like, well, that's not really where where we see the Bible teaching or hmm. on issues of you know morality or culture shifts and more. So it's in some ways— it's helped us to see some things, but in a whole lot of ways, it has accelerated cultural changes that could be and probably are detrimental to people who are followers of Jesus in the culture. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what would you say when you see leaders, we have business leaders, but a lot of church leaders listening as well, and, and most of the people who listen to this podcast are somewhat invested in their church. Um, what are some of the top issues teaching leadership, as you do, that you see leaders having to navigate over the last few years? You know, changes the church has to embrace, leaders have to embrace. What is what is sort of the old toolkit, toolkit new toolkit on that one, Ed? Yeah. Yeah, so I think every um, 
every 60 years, it appears, I'm going to use the term America for just a second, recognizing mm. that well, most, you are Canadian. Most listeners are American. So go ahead. There you go. Exactly. And, and <laughs> I, I don't know why that is. They that. listen to some Canadian. Yeah, you know, we love, we love, who doesn't love the Carrie Newhoff podcast? My daughter actually will be uh, moving to Canada in the fall to attend the University of Toronto. Okay. So not only are we continuing our Canadianness, but she'll, be living out. She's also a citizen. I'm the only one in my family who's not a Canadian citizen. Well, so I feel we welcome you anyway. Out. We're Canada. Thank That's you. The we Canadians Great. are well, very welcoming. Also, so my like wife and I and my son, all graduates of U of T. So there you go. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good deal. Yeah, pharmacy law it. engineering, pharmacy theology oh. engineering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, and, and people don't know that I had the privilege of having uh, you and your wife on our podcast, talk about her new book as well. I'm sure you, I hope you've mentioned it at some point on your podcast. Yes, we, uh, your wife we did make an oblique reference to Tony's new I book guess. before you split. <laughs> <laughs> Insert ad here. I would imagine. At yeah. some point you should do that. Um, so let me give the, the, the bigger picture. I think every 60 years, um, and again, David Brooks writes about this in, uh, in The Atlantic. Every 60 years, America seems to go through a cultural convulsion. And it certainly impacts Canadian context as well. It's a it's a Western thing. But I think right now we're going through a cultural convulsion. And the last cultural convulsion was in the 60s. And it was tumultuous, tumultuous and turbulent at a significant level. And I think um, I think that one of the things I want to say to leaders of all kinds, uh, church leaders, pastors, leaders in business and more, is that this cultural convulsion uh, is not a pandemic experience alone. Remember, too, remember, it was the pandemic. It was the economic uh, collapse and then rebound, but not for everybody everywhere. It was the political division in the U.S. You know, in in the course of a year, we had two impeachments, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. The, and the division. Don't go and, past uh, that. Know, That's a lot historically. Yeah, right? it's, it's stunning. It's stunning. Yeah. You've never seen a level of division except in 1968. I, I don't want us to miss this. Right. So. So 1968 is perhaps the most divided year, more divided than this year uh, in, in many of our lifetimes. So 1968, the protests of much larger magnitude were taking place. Vietnam War protests, civil rights protests, and, and escalated into violence. In, in Chicago, Mayor Daley basically said to the police, just, just break everyone's heads open, and they did. And, um, and then uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. And uh, Bobby Kennedy assassinated later that year as well. And what a lot of people forget is 1968 was also a global pandemic. It was it was called the Hong Kong flu. It wasn't controversial oh, yeah. to label it that then. But so you've got this global pandemic, cultural division, people talking about America coming apart at the seams. And so here, here we are in another cultural convulsion. So two things I want people to see. One is um, I don't think this is over when the pandemic is over. I think we've entered into a season of tumult and turbulence that will probably last three to four years as North Americans question their institutions, uh, really determine that people have not been honest with them and they're gonna find them other ways and then they're gonna find those ways untrustworthy. And this is all what we're seeing going on with social media, the creation of new news sources, the echo chambers, all these sorts of things. This is not dissimilar to what we saw in 1968. It's a cultural convulsion. Also in 1968, for church leaders, if you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr., who, by the way, was not a popular figure in 1968. Now he's universally acclaimed, but, you know, very unpopular. 
Um, if you mentioned Martin Luther King and the civil rights protests, some people in your church were happy. Some people in your church were unhappy. Churches split. Pastors were voted out, just like they are in 2020 and 2021. When you mention George Floyd or not, when you mention mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter or not, when you when you mention masks or not, yeah. when you mention <laughs> vaccines <laughs> or not. So the level of conflict that we are dealing with now is in many ways inconceivable for a lot of the pastors and church leaders on the younger side. I don't remember 1968. You don't remember 1968. We read about it in history books. But the level of conflict they walked through lasted five, six years. And I think that's going to recur. And we're going into a season where we're going to have to build up as leaders greater reservoirs of resilience to face a higher level of conflict that's going to be ongoing. And we're going to have to grow accustomed to that level of conflict in our churches, our ministries, in our leadership positions, our businesses, and more. And that's not good news. So, uh, but it, I just, I think it's factually true. I, I appreciate you sharing that perspective and mentioning 1968. So I just want to put a pin in something for um, listeners. We'll link to this in the show notes, but you can go back some episodes and, and the link will be, but I had a chance to interview Eugene Peterson before he died. He talked about 1968 in Baltimore and then um, one of the interviews I've done with Gordon McDonald, he talked about Martin Luther King. And exactly to your point, he was just emerging. They were both emerging as young pastors at the time. And like King is pretty much universally uh, revered today, but he was reviled in many circles yeah. in 1968. And it was every bit as as tense as a lot of the leaders are feeling. What What is the, the toolkit? So we'll link to that in the show notes. That was the point. Yeah. Uh, if you want context on that, because there's very few people who remember that anymore, right? Right. Like I was three, you were in diapers, I'm sure at that time in 1968. So um, what's the toolkit you need when it's this tumultuous? What are what are you trying to encourage leaders to pay attention to? Yeah, part of it, I think, is is uh, growing accustomed to a greater sense of dissatisfaction from the people that we lead. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I I used to make the joke, and um, and I think I wrote this in my book, Comeback Churches. I said, listen, if five percent of your church isn't mad at you, you're probably not doing anything significant. Yeah. And then I would yeah. you know follow it up with a joke, but if seventy percent of your church is mad at you, you need to slow it down. You know, you need to pace yourself better. I mean, that's just a leadership principle. There's going to be people who are unhappy. I think that five percent is now resetting it. 20%. Uh, 20% of people. I mean, think think about, you know, we did an interview early on in the pandemic with Andy Stanley about their decision to pause services until the end of 2020. And then eventually they, they, they started back, uh, they're, they're back meeting now. But one of the things he said was, I think it was in our, I think it was in our interview. He said, you know, I've had people that I've pastored for 20 years who, because we paused meeting or because you know, something else we did, largely has decided that I've abandoned everything that I ever believed and they've left the church unhappy. And, and so, you know, I just, I just, and this is, you know, so many people are unsure. You know, I was just, I just preached out at um, Saddleback Church in Southern California. And, you know, the question is, you know, who, who's coming back and are, how many people are coming back? And I, I think some of that question is people have, there's a great resorting going on. So people have left this church because they required masks and went to this church that didn't. But then this church over here uh, did mention, uh, you know, the name George Floyd or, or, or others, Ahmaud Arbery or whoever else, you know, may be in that 
city or context. Yeah. And those people yeah. went to, were attracted to that church because of that. Other people left that church. So we're in this great resort that's going on right now. And it's mainly driven by cultural currents rather than gospel fidelity. And I think ultimately this is new for leaders. Um, I do think you can't sit back. I mean, I think one of the questions that, you know, during the civil rights protests in 2020, people, you know, the high signs were say his name. And I think, you know, a generic thing were against racism didn't speak to a whole lot of people. So what does it mean when you say it was the sign was related to George Floyd? So you say that name. How do you explain that? How do you walk people through that? So, so I think for leaders, it requires them to build up a greater resilience, be ready for that level of conflict, probably a greater courage because you're going to have to say things that will bother some people. Should I say something about vaccination or not? You know, this is a huge issue in the U.S. right it now. Is. Where vaccine oh, it's in Canada too. Oh my goodness. Yeah. My feed's blown Very up. high among That's white evangelicals and um you know, and we at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, we have been bringing on evangelical leaders, Jay Baker from the CDC, Francis Collins from the CDC, uh, others to talk about uh, and to encourage people to, yes, let me say it, to encourage people to be vaccinated. We think that that's an important thing. Well, that takes a certain courage and decision. Finally, if we look at resilience, courage, I would also say um, you're going to have to figure out what your filter is, is, um, you know, I'm... You know, I'm a cultural commentator in a way that that you're not, because you chose not to be. You're you're I mean, you're all of our leadership guru today. But um, you know, for me, I write articles in USA Today or in CNN or in Christianity Today that I try to speak to evangelicals or to the culture. Um, and 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 I will tell you, I, I don't think pastors and most leaders should not do what I do. They should they should do what I say, not what I do. Hmm. So. Um, there are times to speak up, right? Um, so, you know, when I wrote an article that USA Today, you know, put their number one story for for almost a uh, day and a half, it was on uh, Oral Roberts University, Sweet 16, and cancel culture, hmm. you know, and and I know nothing about sports. I had to Google what the Sweet 16 was to even <laughs> okay, know what it was. That's why we're friends. Neither do I. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. good. We bond. Yeah. But, but I think, yeah. you know, for me, I need to say something about that. And do you, as a leader of a company or a business, you say something about everything? Ma, maybe not. But I think after January 6th, most pastors said, we got to say something about the Capitol riot. I think after George Floyd's murder, most people who said, we need to say something about that. I I think, I hope in, that most pastors would say something in and around um, sanctity of life or to speak up for uh for Christian uh, Christians' ability to hold views that are now outside of the mainstream of culture in their workplaces and more. So that filter is really tricky, and you're going to have to figure it out. If you say something about everything, you're probably burning down your own church from underneath you. Uh, but if you never say anything, where's the courage that to speak to some of the issues that indeed the Bible speaks to in 2021 and in any year? That's a really interesting point because um, being on social, like pretty much everybody is these days, Ed, I would say sometimes the silence has been noticeable. Um, I think you're right. I forget exactly how you phrased it, but there is a time where you need to speak up. There is a time where you need to engage beyond virtue signaling or whatever else everybody else is doing in that moment. But I've also seen some leaders, because I follow a whole lot of church leaders and some business leaders, lots of business leaders, my experience is church leaders probably feel the compulsion, some do, to comment on everything. 
And it's almost like that burning down your church thing. It's like, I don't need, like, where is the line? Because there are some times where I think once or twice it's been an unfollow. It's like, wow, your constant running narrative on mask, no mask, um, every small finding on vaccine. Like, are you the news agency for your followers? (laughs) Like, you know that the people you're trying to reach are watching, right? I don't see business leaders doing that nearly as much as I see church leaders doing that. Any any further nuance yeah. for leaders who are trying to figure out when to shut up and when to speak up? Yeah, it's a great question, partly because um, a lot of times our constituency likes when we say certain things. I will tell you that personally, because I'm someone who is, um, who is uh, deeply committed to the pro-life cause and for concern about the unborn and someone who really is concerned about racial justice and somebody who's really concerned about religious liberty and someone who thinks it really matters how we speak of immigrants and refugees. You know, I, I, um, I am immensely frustrating, people tell me, because uh, someone said to me uh, recently, why don't you just pick a team? You, you're you're, you're kind of, you could be critical of so many different things. I said, why don't you just pick a team? I said, I have. It's just not the political party. It's ultimately as a follower of Jesus. But but I would be less, much less engaged in some of these issues if I were not a commentator. I mean, so that's mm-hmm. literally part of my job at Christianity Today. You know, I'm a, I, I comment there. Yeah, I've heard that's national your job. radio paid as a columnist, as a exactly as a writer. Okay, so put on put on Ed's uh, local pastor hat because you've done that yeah. job more yep. than a few years. Yep. Uh, And I would say, too, that one of the things that gets tricky is that um, the churches I serve. So right now I'm the interim pastor of a church in New York City. um, And, you know, that that, does that rile people up there? You know, I've had people at churches that I serve. I'm teaching pastor at High Point or I was the I was the interim teaching pastor at Moody for four years, you know, four years, you know, during the two election cycles. And so it's. It's tricky, and I have to remind people that I'm a cultural commentator. I'm here going to teach and preach the Word of God, and then I'm going to leave. But if I was pastoring day-to-day, what I would say, the question, the filter I would use is, uh, what can I say that might help people to understand the situation better from a Christian lens, from a biblical worldview that would advance the conversation rather than ultimately to uh, undermine it or set it on fire? So I would say, uh, I would, and and pastors ask me, so right, you know, January 6th, my phone lights up. Should I say anything? And my answer generally was, yes, you should say something, (laughs) partly because these people, these people went to the floor of the Senate and the House and they prayed in Jesus name. And, you know, I, I think, I think there's an expectation that we might say rightfully something. Um, but again, I, I would say, that that doesn't mean, and I would say the time before that where people texted me was after the election in the U.S., my phone blew up saying from people, do I pray for President-elect Biden the Sunday after the election? Because one of the things we find here is a significant number of Republicans still to this day think the election was stolen. And so am I making a political statement by praying for president like Biden? Well, what I told people was, is that, um, that you know, that, that at this point we should pray and pray for president like Biden. And I'm trying to remember how far out it was. It might have been, it might not have been the first Sunday because there was still some, it hadn't been called by most context, mm-hmm. but even that was controversial. So, but, but, you know, I would say, and, and I would say the time I said before that was, I would say, I would say George Floyd and the names of others as well. So, so, so for me, what is that? Three times in a year, a very tumultuous year, mm-hmm. encouraging mm-hmm. people to say something mm-hmm. is not an overwhelming number of times. 
because um, I, what I don't want is people to say my agenda is anything other than a local church, you know, as a local church pastor, than making much of Jesus, um, showing and sharing love of Jesus, helping people trust and follow and grow in discipleship. However, people can't grow as disciples if that discipleship is otherworldly and doesn't address the issues of the world that are around us as well. So, you know, partly, let's say I don't have to make a statement about this, but one of the things we could learn among evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals in North America, is that statistically they tend to be anti-immigrant at a higher level, not just anti-illegal immigrant or undocumented alien, uh, but they're anti-immigrant at a higher level than almost any other group. Well, is that something that is from the Lord or is that something we want to disciple and grow through? Yeah, you know, Canada, you know, visible minorities is the language that is Canadian much more so, but Toronto and Vancouver have more people born in another country than they have people born in Canada living in those Absolutely. cities. And so, Absolutely. Yep. so there's yep. the Christians are more accustomed to it, but but here, so it might not mean that I got to get up and say, here's my view of immigration for reform, but it might mean that I need to teach what it means to welcome the stranger, what it means to show the love of Jesus to people who are here and more. So not everything has to be a statement. Some things can be a discipleship process as well. For those local leaders um, who would say, well, Ed, I feel like I need to comment. I need to comment yeah. on vaccines, masks, whatever, whatever headline and whatever you know, news source I look at, I feel like I need to add my little piece on it, on my social profile, in my sermons. What would you say is at stake to that leader? What would you counsel them to do? What are they not seeing that they should probably see in your view? Yeah, I think one of the things that, and it's always this tricky balance, is that how do you bring people along without losing them? One of the things, if you're 10 steps ahead of people, you lose them. Um, so one of the things you mentioned, vaccines. So one of the things I've encouraged pastors and church leaders to do, and I've got a forthcoming national article in a secular publication about this, is I encourage church leaders to uh, to post the vaccine selfie and to um, to encourage people, hey, I got the vaccine, I want to encourage you to consider it as well, or something, you know, something light like that. Um, now, there's going to be some people who have already gone down the rabbit hole and are convinced that it's some sort of gene therapy and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be getting better 5G reception after they get their vaccine than they got before the vaccine. So you're not going to persuade those people, but those people need to be lovingly said that this is not honoring the Lord, your obsession with conspiracies. And I will tell you, the QAnon people and some of these most most dire conspiracy theory, uh, you know, the anti-vaxxers. I mean, the Venn diagram between those two is basically a circle. Yeah. And so you're not going to persuade them. Uh, I wouldn't empower them. But but I do think that part of my job is to lead is to say to my congregation, because there are a lot of people who are not, they haven't gone down the deep, dark rabbit hole and believe the wildest conspiracies. They're just like, well, should should I do this? Do Christians do this? And so I think it's a good thing. You don't have to do a sermon on it. You can just give a nudge on it and people can... And encouragement is not requiring, you're not requiring, you know, you're not requiring vaccine passports to go to church or anything of that sort. So so what I would say is, is something, a subtle nudge can help lead a congregation in a way that could be helpful for them in the long run. In this case, could save lives. Um, what I would say, on the other hand, is I think that as people have, as these things become politicized. I mean, the, the pandemic didn't cause the politicization, but it did exacerbate it. So, so now masks and non-masks is actually a, is a, is a controversy. On the other hand, I mean, 
you know, if vaccination and masks ought to relate. If you get vaccinated, we, we ought to have some more uh, some more paths to greater engagement and more. So, you know, I've, what I encourage churches to do, now, of course, you know, you're in Canada, so you're still mostly locked down in, in almost Sadly, all of Canada. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's tricky because, you know, Canada doesn't have a domestic uh, vaccine production industry, made a uh, bad bet on a vaccine that didn't work out. And and now countries are sort of, you know, just taking care of themselves first. Now, I think the U.S. is going to start having extra soon based on the fact that vaccine hesitancy is pretty high. So hopefully we can partner and help uh, as well. But what I would say is, is that, you know, we've tried to make paths where, for example, um, the church I'm serving uh, some in uh, uh, Denver. I'm helping out a church there called uh, Cherry Hills. And, um, you know, we have a 9 a.m. mask required service. So if people feel vulnerable, they want to, you know, maybe they got a child with asthma, maybe they're going through chemo, everyone there wears a mask. If you're not wearing a mask, you shouldn't come. In fact, you'll be asked not, you'll be, you'll be asked to leave. Um, and then there are people who are vaccinated or moved on to different places. I recognize that CDC has guidelines. CDC has never really created mandates on these issues. Hmm. CDC, the U, the U.S. Uh, Center for Disease yeah, Control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the so I, I would say that that then we have we it's called mass recommended. We don't say mask optional because we're still living in a pandemic. We say mask recommended. But I can tell you that the nine, the eleven o'clock service people are not wearing masks. There's <laughs> yeah, those who exactly. feel that they're coming the nine. So. To try to find a place to say, and one of the things I think we can lead, I think it's very appropriate for you to say, you know, we want to be careful. There are people in our church who are at risk and who are vulnerable. But remember, there's still some of those people have gone deep down the rabbit hole and they'll say, no, this is all a hoax. There's no pandemic. This is all fake. And those people, that's not a difference of opinion. Those people have been misled into false information. And if we're followers of Jesus, who says he is the way, the truth, and the life, we don't need to we don't need to pander to people who have been misled and are spreading false information. Instead, what we need to do is to nudge people towards a better and a more truthful understanding and lead in ways that don't alienate unnecessarily. Uh, and that gets tricky when you start talking about race because um, you know I'm, I'm I'm talking to you from the Billy Graham Hall basement. Uh, right above me is the Billy Graham Center Museum. And when I take people through the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Museum, I stop at the place where there's a picture of Billy Graham and Martin Luther King. And I remind people that Billy Graham took down the ropes at Chattanooga and said, we're no longer going to do integrated. But I also remind people that he did not participate in the march on Selma. He did not participate on the march on Washington. Actually, he was vocally critical and said later the greatest regret of his life was not participating in the civil rights movement. So what I would say is, is don't hear what I'm saying, and I, I, and I don't think Carrie's saying this either, as don't speak up on prophetic issues of our day. Mm. Find ways to move people and nudge people along. Teach them the Bible. Teach them the Word of God. Challenge them when they're being misled. But ultimately, we have to have the—remember I said earlier, resilience, yes, courage and filter. Resilience, courage, yeah. and filter. Yeah. That courage is going to need to be turned up for some people because they're just—they didn't go into ministry to have people mad at them. But you're not going to make it the next two or three years if you're not going to be willing to have some people unhappy about you taking stands on the right things. Well, and I appreciate your perspective, too, because I think there are definitely issues. Like, we are in a pivotal moment. His historians are going to write about these years as long as there are people. This is a, this is a major epoch in history. And for you to yep. be silent, I think, is a mistake. On the other hand, yep. uh, it is not a prophetic office, in my view, to be commenting on everything on your newsfeed every day. Agreed. 
You're you're Agreed. you're probably Agreed. missing that. Okay. You and if I let me just say, so yeah, Karen, yeah, if please. I was a pastor, yeah, I'm kind of a fake pastor. You know, I mean, I shouldn't say that because people, <laughs> I love people, and but you know, I'm the interim pastor of this church in New York City. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah. but if I was a actual pastor, I would say a lot, say and write a lot less, um, because because I wouldn't be spending all my time trying. I, I part of what I do is I try to persuade evangelicals to respond in gospel-focused, spirit-filled ways, and I try to persuade the culture that evangelicals are are okay, and here's how to deal. So so that's my role. That's not my role if I'm pastoring, you know, First Church of, of you know, wherever, Kansas. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and to that point, too, you know, sometimes I think if, if you're a non-Christian listening in on this podcast, and there's probably quite a few non-Christians listening on this podcast, you're like, what are you guys even talking about? Yeah, like, you know, there's there's a weirdness to this dialogue. I realize how important sure. it is, but it's like if you're trying to reach a city, I always thought, you know, in our country, it's liberals and conservatives. In your country, it's Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Libertarians, you know, all that stuff. Like your 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 community is diverse. Your church may not yeah, be, but your community is diverse. And if you're really trying to reach people, you're trying to reach all people, people of of different backgrounds, ethnicities, races, uh, people with different voting tendencies, socioeconomic status. And the constant ideological drip in your sermons is is getting in the way of reaching the people that God loves. And um, a lot of this seems to be as much ideological as theological. Would you agree with that, that this is as much about ideology as theology? Or is that yeah, I think so. So I think they yeah. tend to track together on certain things, right? So mm. it's not as much the case in Canada or much of the rest of the English-speaking Western world, but in the U.S., largely in some ways because of the actions of the parties over the last few decades, is that their uh, ideology and theology has begun to align. So, so, and some of that has to do with issues like uh, pro-life and religious liberty. So those those have aligned more easily. I, I align much, much on, on those issues. Where it gets tricky is that I'll give you an example. So um, I've been a vocal supporter of immigration reform for I don't even know how long, 15 years. I've signer mm-hmm. of the evangelical immigration table and more. And my uh, my view was almost identical to George W. Bush's view, uh, very similar to what's called the Gang of Eight's view. So that when Marco Rubio who happens to be a friend and several others who uh, who were sort of you know so Democrats and Republicans. So, uh, and that was considered a, I mean, George W. Bush, compassionate conservative, that was considered a conservative view. Um, Well, what's happened is, and you know, most evangelical leaders could have got behind the evangelical immigration table, which sort of followed that pattern. What happened was, is that ideology continued to shift, and now nationalism has sort of arisen, and not just in the U.S. I mean, those elections in Quebec were, I mean, yeah. So, um, so so nationalism has arisen, and what's happened is it's taken sort of evangelicals, at least here, white evangelicals in particular, with it. So now I'm, according to uh, a Snopes article, uh, you know, Snopes debunks urban legends, one of the urban legends about me, that I'm a uh, George Soros-funded open borders radical. Uh, though, you know, actually I kind of held the same view that George W. Bush held. And, <laughs> um, and so now again, that was debunked and it's not true, but if George, let me just tell you, if George Soros wants to give me millions of dollars and is fine with me using it any way that I want, I will tell the world the good news of the gospel with that money. So he's not yet though, however, um, and I'll just do a great evangelism campaign. But my point is, is that, 
uh, ID. And one of the questions I think evangelicals need to ask is, the reckoning evangelicals need to face is, how much now are we being shaped by ideology, less mm -hmm. by theology? And I think the reason we can tell is when the ideology shifted and nationalism kind of is making a global resurgence, at least much of the church tribe where I'm in just shifted with it, which tells us that it's more driven by the ideology than it is by theology. And that is a cause, I think, for great concern. Why are so many Christians falling for conspiracy theories? Suckers. You've written about this. You've talked to MPR yeah. about this. What, what, what do you think it is? Why, why do we bite that? that, that yeah, it was interesting. I wrote about it in September of 2020 and widely um, panned by the most conservative voices on the Twitters. They basically said, you could actually track them. We call them the Theo bros. Um, so they all said, you know, this is just Ed Stetzer, virtue signaling. There's no problem with conspiracies. There are bigger problems. And everyone got real quiet about that on January 6th when uh, the QAnon supporters that I wrote about in September of the year before uh, breached the Capitol and the stunning debacle that that was. So, so I do think it's a real issue. It's a substantial issue. Now, why? Um, first of all, it's not just a religious issue, though it is does though it does impact evangelicals. It has religious people, overtones, maybe. It does have religious overtones, particularly here. But you know, QAnon's also big in France, which is one of the most secular countries in the world. So here it has religious overtones. Um, and I do think here um QAnon and other conspiracy theories can often run on the tracks that religion has put down. So um you know, I believe that there is a God of all the universe who's working behind the scenes, that there are evil forces that are working behind the scenes, that ultimately in this great moment, God's going to reveal the fullness of that. Christ is going to return. There's going to be this great uh, revealing. and But until then, there's subtle signs and working in the and gods that work in the background in ways that might surprise us. And, and of course, that sounds a lot like Q. Um, yeah. And it sounds a lot like, you know, these this cabal of, you know, uh, cannibalistic pedophiles that are running, uh, running uh, media and, and all kinds of other things. <laughs> right, right. That whole theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I would say is, is that people get drawn to it because they're trying to make sense of the world. There must be somebody doing something. And then mm -hmm. and then they see some hints that sort of point to it. So I'm very sympathetic to people who. Um, have been influenced that way because I do believe some common things. I, I ended up doing this, well, that NPR interview you mentioned, I tried to explain this and, you know, to irreligious people, uh, and I don't necessarily know that, I'm not talking about the hosts, I don't know whether they're religion or non-religion. But, yeah, you know, but they have a broad audience. Yeah. yeah, broad audience. And I'm talking to three to four million people and I'm trying to explain this. But I, I do think that people right now are afraid, they're unsure, and they're isolated. And when you're afraid and unsure and isolated, conspiracy theories just escalate. And with the easy access to online, that is just that is just created and continue this. And it's interesting, you know, Facebook um, banned you know uh, all the stuff afterwards, and 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 actually, uh, was it Parler got kicked off of their server yeah. and had to shut yeah, down? Yeah, kicked off but the it's app interesting. store at Apple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, but it was actually Facebook where most of these things were planned. So, so they kicked Parler off of the off of the interwebs, but it was actually face private Facebook groups that that where people were self radicalized and ended up, you know, storming the Capitol. So, what I would say is, how did they get there? Well, 
What is a private Facebook group? It's a community. It's a community that cares about things. That care begins to be multiplied. Those views begin to become radicalized. And the end result is people without outside input. And the Washington Post did a great story on, and we can link to it in the show notes. I'll, I'll yeah, send it yeah, to you. Will. Um, great story of this guy who attended this church, this mainstream, I think it was a Southern Baptist church in Kentucky, whose pastors started seeing him get down this rabbit hole and and they tried to say to him, hey, you don't want to do this. And he distanced himself more and more and more. And later he would come back and say he was just, you know, almost bewitched by this. And I think there are some, some, some we can see early some of the patterns of people who believe these things and we want to reach out to them before they get too far down the rabbit hole. And then it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of an echo chamber that's just heartbreaking. Let me let me say, too, one more thing. Um, you know, city of Rome, Rome, Italy, was 2,000 years ago had hot and cold running water. And people maybe are unaware. It was the biggest city in the world. It was a million people. And there was another city of a million people in the West until London. I mean, so it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, 1700. I've so seen the Roman baths, the ruins. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Like, you have to be there. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this was like yeah. 2,000 years ago. How could they do that 2,000 years ago? And, yeah. and the reason is, is they had these pipes made of a kind of metal that was malleable in a way that other pipes aren't. It was called lead. And so they ran lead pipes to all of their waters, to their drinking and everything else. And people have, you know, I don't think it led to the fall of Roman civilization, but it led to serious health impacts. And I'm, I'm telling you that 50 years from now, maybe two years from now, people are going to look back at the social media age as the lead pipes of the Romans, that it was simultaneously feeding and killing us at the same time. It was quenching a thirst and poisoning us at the same time. And I think social media, when the era, this era is, is you know, his, made into history, I think social media will be seen as a huge downfall. And I, d- I did a fascinating interview with Karen Swallow Pryor about this, and she helped me see that like every 60 year, the cultural convulsion, there's a longer time when people have an information revolution. And they don't know what's true anymore. They don't know where to find what's true. And they question what's true because they're, everything's undermined. And it's a bad season. It's a dark ages. And she calls this often the technological dark ages where people don't know what to believe. They're being f- drawn in down rabbit holes that can lead them to echo chambers that can fool them and radicalize them. And if we don't find a path through, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure that Twitter and Facebook banning everybody is the answer to that because- Again, you're, you're already seeing people getting caught up in that who are what you and I consider would consider mainstream Christian voices when they say things that are not appreciated. But, I, man, I just – I tell you, I don't know all the answers, but we're – the next few years are going to be a tumultuous I, – I, I don't – I almost feel bad saying this, but I've come to this conclusion very strongly that if the pandemic ends by the fall, which, I, you know, might be yeah. in North America, we recognize it. That in places that are um, globally, you know, it's globally still out it's of just, control. It's, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But if it ends in North America by the fall, we're not done. We've got two, three, four, five years of cultural turbulence while people just question everything. And I hope back to 1968, you know, it was 1968 when a guy named Chuck Smith said to his daughter, I want to meet a hippie. He was a four square pastor. She goes out, and brings home a hippie. His name's Lonnie Frisbee. They start a Bible study on Sunday night. Soon they have coffee houses up and down the West Coast by the 6970, and it explodes into a movement that 20 to 30 million people become followers of Christ. And maybe 
cultural times of tumult actually lead if churches will be faithful to a fruitful season of gospel ministry. It's such a helpful narrative. I want to put a couple pins in things for leaders. These are going to be big show notes. Uh, Apologize to my producer, Aaron, for this in advance publicly. Uh, We'll link to all that in the show notes. So one of the books I read this year was very similar to your view, because I think right now everybody wants to get back to normal. Everyone wants to put their head in the sand and just pretend it isn't, you know, happening the way it's happening. And it's like, can we please go back to normal? Can we please have some peace? Uh, Yuval Harari said something really interesting. And again, not a person of faith to my knowledge, or at least certainly not the Christian faith. But he said, one of the natural responses to the chaos that we're seeing is cynicism. It's just like, oh, you want to put your head down. You're just so angry at everybody, et cetera, et cetera. He said, and this really challenged me spiritually. He said, the proper answer is bewilderment. And I thought that was really helpful. It's like, I'm just kind of bewildered by all of this. And I don't know which end is up. And then uh, I think it's George Freeman. I may have his name wrong, but he wrote a book called The Storm Before the Calm. And uh, he said the same thing, that we're in for a decade of tumult. And he talked about economic cycles and political cycles, both kind of culminating around 2030. So I think this is really helpful conversation because if we think, oh, I'm just going to get everybody back in the building, everything will go back to normal. I'm not sure that's a realistic view of, of what's ahead. And it's going to make leadership more demanding, no matter what you do. I mean, quit your job, you're still living in this world, right? So let's, let's uh, with all that said, let's talk a little bit about this reckoning that you've written about. You feel like the church is going through a reckoning, which I think those on the outside are kind of grateful to see. It's like, yeah, we got some sins we need to own. And, and many people inside the church are either denying it or like, no, I don't think so. What, what do you mean by that, reckoning? Well, of course, we. I wrote an article after January 6th riots and, um, in USA Today, and it was widely probably the most read thing I've ever um, written. And uh, based on the – I literally got two-inch high of paper e- uh, letter responses, let alone thousands of emails and tens of thousands of tweets and threats and everything else. But it was the, – the USA, USA Today put the title on it, Evangelicals Face a Reckoning, Donald Trump and the Future of Our Faith. And, um, you know, I, I'll just – let me just say where I said. Um, I started with no one likes to admit they were fooled. It's tough to admit we're wrong. Now many evangelicals are seeing President Donald Trump for who he is, but more need to see what he has done to us. It's time for an evangelical reckoning. And I was really very careful um, in the article, people who read – through it would see that. And um, and I talked about how there's a subset of evangelicals. And, and there, let me just let me just say that they at the beginning. People make complex decisions when they vote. They uh, they walk in and they say, uh, these are my values that I care about. Who would best get us there? Maybe, maybe, maybe there's two or three paths to get there. And one of the things I did in the article, which I think surprised a lot of people, was um, I really just pointed out that how, for many people, uh, they they made a difficult choice um, between, you know, in, in, it was Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump the first time and then Joe Biden because of their concerns about lots of very important issues to them. And so I very much defended people who were um, – those, those, those President Trump supporters and voters who voted and knew what they were – saw him for who he was – uh, and for what he was doing. Uh, but there's a subset of people who just didn't. And they were all in and, um, and, and, and they were, you know, they were, they were fooled. And I quoted uh, Chuck Colson, 
you know, we have the uh, Colson yeah. scholars here at the Wheaton College, Billy Graham Center and more. And Colson said this, when I served under President Nixon, one of my jobs was to work with special interest groups, including religious leaders. He says we would invite them to the White House, wine and dine them, take them on cruises aboard the presidential yacht. And he went on to say, few were more easily impressed than religious leaders. The very people who should have been immune to the worldly pomp seemed the most vulnerable. And I think I think ultimately just a lot of people were all in and in a way that I think people of color, evangelicals of color, like how could you just be push aside all of these concerns, what what he says about this or what he did about that. And of course, now everyone say, well, you know, just mean tweets. It wasn't just mean tweets. There were, I mean, this was, this was, of course, right after the January 4th uh, riots as well. So, um, you know, for me, um, I want to say to people, um, you know, I, I love the words of Martin Luther, quote, towards those who've been misled, we are to show ourselves parentally affectionate so they may not perceive that we seek uh, so they may perceive that we seek not their destruction, but their salvation, unquote. And I would say that we need to say to people who were fooled into thinking that President Trump was some, uh, now not everyone was this way, right? I, I say in the article, I, I don't believe everyone who voted for Trump was fooled or foolish. And Trump voters are not Trump. These are my actual words. They're not responsible for all his actions, uh, but they are responsible for the way they responded and for their own hearts. But when I saw, for example, uh, I don't think, from what I know, you're not a charismatic Pentecostal, and I, I'm not that much, though I got a little bit of that in me. I'm a, um, I'm a you know, former Calvinist and Presbyterian, so there's not a lot of emotion so yeah, in here. So you can't have those things. Um, but, you know, all the prophets who prophesied that President Trump would win the election, and then all the Christian leaders who, you know, who were actually, you know, just fooled on— some of the big lie about the you know, the election being stolen, even though you know Bill Barr and and the head of election security said it wasn't, and all this sorts of stuff. That at the end of the day, we got to say you, there's a reckoning. Why were we so easily enraptured by a thrice married casino owner who is very clear on on uh, on on you know on on his own life and his own journey. And I think that's the question that that still needs to be addressed. Now, um, for white evangelicals in particular, and I think a lot of evangelicals of color are asking, why were they as well? So let me say again that, because um, you have listeners right now who are you know, throwing stuff at their electronic device that they're listening to this on, is that I, in the article- <laughs> You got a few people upset. People yeah. upset. yeah, fair. And I'm okay. A few people were upset at the article. But in the article, I've made very clear that there are people, and this and this actually get people mad. I interviewed David French, and I'm like, David, can you not find any place? This is paraphrasing, where because he basically says people are either fooled by Donald Trump or uh, complicit or something like that. And I said, well, what about a third option where people just thought he was the the least of two bad choices? They they didn't want to go along with the uh, you know the Democratic you know approach to to whatever abortion, um, uh, you know sexuality, transgendered views, whatever it may be. And, and I couldn't, I mean, so for him, there wasn't that, I think there is, I think there are people probably, if you're listening to Carrie Newhoff, you're probably maybe in that realm of, you know, I made a tough decision between two people. Uh, but you also know that there were people like millions upon millions of people who were fooled. And January 6th was an eye-opening moment for them. Some actually wrote about it. Some actually said more. And, and what I would say is, I think a lot of people lost their witness in a way that they felt the need to defend often and always the indefensible. And there were times when it just didn't need to be defended. And my hope is, you know, as one who's, I wasn't a, 
uh, I did support President Biden, uh, then candidate Biden. I did support President Biden. Um, I've been publicly critical of his stance on the Equality Act, on his, I, you know, I could, I could, these, these are things that are not Canadian, so I won't spend too much time. Yeah, yeah. But I just think for us, we have got to acknowledge that there needs to be a reckoning of how evangelicals, certain subset of evangelicals reacted and responded to the affection of this president that ultimately costs them a lot in the process. And I think a lot of people know that now, and and we're still picking up some of the pieces from that. And that goes back to your earlier point about the constant, our earlier point about the constant running narrative that so many leaders feel compelled to have, right? If you're weighing in on all the small stuff, it's big. I'd love to go back to the Chuck Colson quote, and I'm so glad you connected some dots for me because it must have been your article I read, and that quote haunted me when, oh, I, yes, read. when I read I'd never heard it before. Can you read it again? And then yeah. I want to unpack it because I, I think about that on a regular basis. And I read, when did you write that? Months ago? Like four months ago? So this was January 10th. So four days after the yeah, Capitol. So four riot. months ago, you wrote this. I think about this all the time and I hadn't looked it up. So just read it again, please, Ed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's been haunting for me because partly, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been a privilege of being to the White House and, and, you know, and, and have, you know, talked to different people of, in, in leadership and more. And they're all, you know, I, I don't know if you, you know, I think they, they all want you to think they like you, uh, you know, and that's part of how it works. But but anyway, so here's here's what. So Colson, who we know as like this prison ministry reformer, you know, prison fellowship and more. But he was like, and again, most of us aren't old enough to remember this, but he was like the hammer in the Nixon administration. He, was and he went to prison. I mean, he was, he was at right. the center of the scandal. Oh, yeah. Big, and goes to prison. So here's what he says. Um when I served under President Nixon, one of my jobs was to work with special interest groups, including religious leaders. Let me say today, the Biden administration had that. That's uh, uh, Josh, Josh, uh, Josh Dixon. Uh, before that was Shannon Royce with the Trump administration or Paula White, right? Everyone has that. Nothing wrong with that. Says we would invite them to the White House, wine and dine them, take them on cruises aboard the presidential yacht. And then here's what he says. Ironically, few people were more easily impressed than religious leaders. The very people who should have been immune to the worldly pomp seemed the most vulnerable, unquote. And it's it's heartbreaking. But here's the thing. When I say that, for most of our listeners, there are evangelical leaders in the U.S. that come immediately to mind and say they mm-hmm. – and that's what I was writing about. Those leaders – and I heard from some of them – those leaders and <laughs> millions of people who joined them as well. No, and and okay, so let's unpack that a little bit because I not only saw political influence, and I'm I'm not making myself immune from that. Okay, I'll put myself under this. This is not a judgment thing. I think I'm too easily impressed sometimes by power, by influence, um, but celebrity culture kind of flashes through your mind, right? And how sure. many how many Christian leaders, business leaders, sports leaders have we seen fall? And this is a passion of mine to try to figure out how do we stop this or prevent it or minimize its happening, where where they got impressed by the trappings of whatever office perk came with it. Um, you know, and there's the political power. We saw all the pictures on Instagram of people standing in the White House, you know, with the president, whoever that president might be. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, am I easily impressed? Like what, why are we, why are we so vulnerable? I think there's inherent in all of us. I mean, first of all, we're not wired for celebrities. So that's why pastors and Christians need to be very careful uh, because it's just not. I mean, Eugene Peterson talks a lot about that. And and I think, you know, that's part of the challenge. Uh, I would say that there's something to 
being listened to. So I, I would tell you, as one who's, um, you know, I was I was actually um, trying to figure out what I should say on a widely listened to podcast. As someone who was helping a Republican candidate in 2016, um, uh, that you would know, um, no. connect. He wanted to meet some evangelical leaders. I was happy to do that. Um, I can still feel the sense like, you know, I got the cell phone of someone everyone in the world would know. Um, mm -hmm. And as someone who's been approached, you know, by, um, you know, other politicians and and presidential candidates. And, you know, I, I, I in 2016, I, I think I interviewed five of the presidential candidates, you know, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, um, uh, Ben Carson, I, I, you know, and and. You know, in doing so, I mean, it was great. You know, it was, and everyone was like super nice to the evangelical because they wanted to recruit uh, the evangelicals. And so, but it still feels good to you, right? And so Democrats yeah, will yeah. reach out, you know, and and, I, and I'm not so naive. So I was, uh, my, my local uh, uh, re representative is, is uh, or congressman here is a, is a liberal Democrat. Um, and he asked me to come on a Facebook Live with him. And- <laughs> Um, I, I would basically say, you know, I mean, I can say whatever. And he said, yeah, you can say whatever. And so, um, you know, it's nice to be consulted. It feeds our ego. And here's the thing that many of the closest supporters of President Trump and President Biden have already found out is that when you stop agreeing and speak prophetically, your access is suddenly diminished. So, so what happens is you are incentivized to always just slavishly support whatever it is that that person is. Because if so, you know, I mean, I was and I, I've written about this. I think I was quoted in The Washington Post about it. I was asked to be on President Trump's advisory council uh, and and I declined to be on that. But and to be fair, that wasn't I mean, they at the time, they, I think they were asking like everybody. So who is an evangelical leader to be on the council? So don't. Well, they missed me. Too, Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're Canadian. So, you know, we don't yeah. we don't we don't count you in American elections. But um, yeah. but, you know, so so but what what I saw was is that people because then all of a sudden some egregious things come up. So what do you do when the Access Hollywood bus tape comes out? Mm -hmm. Well, many of those Christian leaders said this is horrible and this is just it's inconceivable that somebody who says these things could be president of the United States. Well, they weren't consulted much anymore. And some mm -hmm. who really walk, I mean, actually some, because I don't think everyone, I think people got caricatured and sort of lumped together because a couple of people in that who really did actually use their influence to work towards criminal justice reform and to help soften some things related to immigration. So, you know, there's this weird balance. Someone needs to be at the table, but if coming into the table, you end up having to sell your soul to stay at the table, then ultimately that's not, you know, Christians then, this is the, always the challenge with Christians in politics is that it's never, it's never pure as the Bible study that we're leaving Sunday morning before church. You know, it's, it's, Ooh. it's, it's tricky to figure how ultimately that is. And I've, so for me, you know, people try to draw in. I've actually determined that I've declined uh, any invitations recently that have been uh, both for the Trump and Biden administration, though I've worked with both administrations through the um, their offices, faith-based partnerships, anything that involves going and being in pictures and being whatever. I, I just say, you know, I don't, I don't know how that helps. All that does is create in me, look, look, here's a picture um, when we can actually do some things together. And I would just say, 
that under the Trump administration, we work with them with their opioid. I testified at their uh, some of their mental health and the con- and church's response to that. We worked with them in, met- in mental health issues. And the Biden administration, we're working with them on vaccine hesitancy. Um, we're working with them on rural ministry, uh, rural options, both for churches, both the uh, Trump and Biden administration. So there are places and ways you can do that. I just don't want to get caught up in uh, in a place where people use you for their agenda. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the now oft-repeated social media mantra that if the uh, product is free, you are the product, right? There's a certain sense in which there's yeah. a very specific thing going on here. And then I would say, you know, just to to be totally clean, I haven't been invited to the White House, but, you know, there are times even in thinking of celebrity culture where I will land a guest like Ed Stetzer or someone that was a cold call and I'll be like, yes, I can't believe they're going to be on my podcast. And what is that? I think underneath that is a bit of insecurity, just to be totally transparent. Uh, I think there's some insecurity under that. You're right. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel like perhaps you've arrived. And that's something that I probably need to check on a regular basis. But that Colson quote, we'll put it in the show notes if people want to find it. It it was so powerful. And let me add too that I think the it's worth noting too that evangelicals, and recognize not all your listeners are evangelicals. We want to yeah, yeah, of course. get that. Not all your listeners would identify as Christian. But um evangelicals have an inferiority complex because culture has sort of pushed us aside. They feel marginalized Bingo. Bingo. and more. And so then when it comes to President Trump, President Trump just, I mean, for a lot of evangelicals, there was a president who liked us. And he, he I mean, so, you know, worship leaders were in the Oval Office. And I would say that, that you know, during the 2016 election, I was interviewed for uh, an article in Slate magazine. I'll give you the link to put in the show notes. And, and it was why Hillary Clinton bombed with evangelical voters. And I was the main kind of, you know, source for the story. And and I said in there, it's it's as if Hillary Clinton was working to alienate evangelicals, and it worked. And what I would say is is that there's very much a sense that you know if you look even like at President George W. Bush, who I think you know evangelicals by and large loved. He he I think he used the term evangelical to define himself at times. He was a he goes to a Methodist church primarily. I know he listens to Tim Keller sermons. Um, you know so so but. But where the administration didn't look like that, whereas – and one of the things that nobody ever picked up on – I wrote about this once, but I don't think anybody cared – is that there were more active evangelicals in President Trump's cabinet than any cabinet in the history of the country. And so, you know, people like Purdue, who's a Sunday school teacher at First Baptist Woodstock, you know, Georgia, people like – Ben Carson's an active Seventh Day Adventist. People like the the uh, the Vosses. I mean, it, who's who? You know, they've been key donors to, I mean, all kinds of things from Global Leadership Summit, everything else. These are these are people that we know. Now, people might not like them, but these are people that we know. And yet, so so if you got a president who, even though clearly there's some personal issues that were dominating decades of his life. But he likes us. He really likes us. And I think a lot of people were persuaded by that. And I would also say, too, um, and I wrote about this in the article, that as one who supported his Supreme Court nominations vocally and aggressively, uh, as, I, as I did, one who, who uh, was deeply appreciative of his uh, executive orders on pro-life issues and more. So it, it, what I would say, it's, it's complex. My article was asking the question, and I think the question still remains, is how do we address that subset of evangelicals? 
who were so all in that they're willing to sacrifice unity in their church. They're willing to not listen to the concerns of maybe people of color. Uh, they were, and they just dismissed all that because he's our guy. And I think that has some long-term ramifications still need to be addressed in the church. And I think I call that an evangelical reckoning. And I'm, I'm writing a book in and around that space. That might even be the title of the book, The Evangelical Reckoning, though it's not about, well, it's not about politics, but it's ultimately what I think the last decade hasn't just made evangelicals into something else, it's revealed who evangelicals are. And there's some real issues that need to be addressed for that. Well, I think you made a link back in one of the pieces I was reading, getting ready for today, to Mark Knoll's book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which I haven't read and I want to read. It was like, better buy that book. But it was about something that I'm really passionate about, which is the poverty of intellectual thought that seemed to be existing in the church. When did he write that? 80s, 90s? It was a while ago, wasn't it? Gosh, I don't know. It's a, it's a classic around here. He was it's here classic, when he yeah, wrote it. It's not like yeah. three years ago. I'm going to anyway, look it up because I don't remember. What I, what I really appreciate, Ed, is, you know, obviously there are going to be people with very different opinions who are listening to this podcast and might vehemently disagree with you. But what I appreciate about it is it, a, it is a thoughtful conversation that seems to have pushed beyond the polemics, the arguments, the all caps debate that seems to have defined the last little while. And I hope, I hope shows like this actually spawn more thoughtful um, dialogue. Now, yeah, I'd do be you interested. have a date on that? Yeah, so 1994 is when the book was written, okay, by the yeah, way. Okay, yeah, 94. And, uh, and I, just, I just was emailing Mark today. We love Mark around here. Um, so, but I'm interested. I'm, it's your show, and you can edit this out later if you don't like it. But this is not generally your space, but you obviously thought it was important. So why, why have this conversation? Why alienate what could alienate some of your audience by having us talk about this? I'll tell you why. Why I wanted to go here, because we could have talked about a million things. And we have. I mean, I've done a lot of racial justice episodes. We've, we've hinted on this, but I've really appreciated your perspective, Ed, because I feel like you take it from all sides. I feel like the conservatives don't like you, the liberals don't like you, the independents don't like you, the evangelicals don't like you, the, the you know, the progressives struggle with certain pieces. And, and something about that tells me, and I'm you're right, I'm not a cultural commenter, I'm not a theologian. I basically write on leadership. I you know, the the secret mission of the company really is all the stuff that they didn't prepare you for. I went to law school, I went to a seminary graduated law school, had no idea how to operate a law firm, <laughs> graduated <laughs> seminary, didn't know how to run a church, you know, could read my Bible better. That I'm really grateful for that. Knew some theology, read some history. It was awesome. But like, oh my gosh, heard these elders? I have no idea. So that seems <laughs> so to, that be, seems my to space. be my space. And yeah. yet what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a space where people who disagree can come together and not be disagreeable. Yeah. Um, and I found you to be a very reasonable, refreshing encouraging voice in the midst of what what honestly drove me to the cynical side of my personality. I'm an optimist, but I'm looking at this going, can I please wake up in another world? I've had a yeah. lot of those days in the last yeah. year. And so I've, I've really, really valued your voice. Um, how do you withstand, does, is that a good enough answer? Because I have a couple more yeah, questions. Yeah, it is fascinating. I, I would say that I, I would say that I would want to nuance, it's your answer, but I'd want to nuance it. I think that um, that online 
make something. I, I think the kind of ideas that I'm talking about are actually not that controversial. And based on you know, the fact that- They're long-form conversations that you can't have on social. Exactly. So, you know, so I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm speaking at the same places I'm speaking. I'm engaging evangelical leaders and denominations and everything else in the same way I've ever been. So it hasn't been like, but what happens is, you know, first of all, you know, only 7% of Americans are on Twitter and only half of them are active. So it's a little bit confusing to people. They go on Twitter and they see- this crazy response to something and it's not real world, you know? So, so what happens is, so I think partly is, is the kind of things that the reason I think you and I resonate, partly we just, we know each other, we're friends, but I think the reason that you read that and say, that's a reasonable evangelical voice is because that's what probably most evangelicals like you, um, think. And it's like, Oh, I agree with, I I think it's reasonable because I agree with them. (laughs) <laughs> and so no, we what talk happens about this is, all the time on my team. Yeah. It's like most people are not on this poll or That's that exactly poll. Right. Most people are in the middle and yeah. we want to create a thoughtful dialogue for yep. people. And I don't agree with all my friends. Right. I don't agree with all my guests, but it's like, please, can we have a civil dialogue about this? Because yeah, so, I get better. Yeah. So what I would say is that the reason I even have a space or a voice is I'm a conservative evangelical who I think articulates what a lot of evangelical centrist to conservative evangelicals think, but it's actually the loudest voices that get make the news. So when I'm on NPR's Morning Edition, people are like, yes, yes, that's what I think. But that's because that's what all most of the other pastors in your community think. And that's what most people in your church think. It's actually the other people are sort of the, the, the outliers and where you and I are. And that's what I want to say to our listeners is that this is not like, yeah, I, I know it doesn't make Fox News. I know it doesn't make even CNN or MSNBC, but um, pastors, church leaders, Christians in business all across the country are trying to navigate these things, and they care about racial justice, and they care about the unborn, and they care about religious liberty, and they care about immigrants and refugees. And I think one of the reasons, so so when I go to a place, you know, a, a pastor will say to me, thanks for being our voice. And I'm like, well, it's not that hard. I'm just kind of saying what most pastors and Christian leaders I know think and say, just saying in a public sphere, because I've been given a blessing, the opportunity to do that. So I, I think I think we are being fooled into thinking that the extremes are the norm, and I don't think they are. And I think to a lot of people, you know, you and I would be extremes to, to some parts of the world, but but I, I, think, I think ultimately that's the voice that God's called me to have is to help to say, you know what, that's just a reasonable conservative evangelical view on those things. And so we'll keep pressing and who knows, who knows. You know, <laughs> I'm so glad you said that, Ed, because I really, I really think that's why I haven't had this conversation very often. I'm trying to de-escalate the venom, not escalate it. And I think that's where I'm like, okay, who's safe to go there and have a, and that's why long form, we're an hour and 11 minutes into this interview. Um, You can't do this when you have 40 seconds on Fox News or, um, you know, on CNN to, to answer things. You just can't do it that quickly. So I really appreciate it. Um, how do you withstand the criticism from all sides? Because that is what a lot of leaders are dealing with right now. They're like, okay, Ed, I'm not in your seat, not in the White House. I'm not in the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, but I am getting beat up on all sides and I want to quit. You, David Kinnaman and I, you probably know the stat, 29% of all pastors have seriously thought about quitting. I think you can extend that to a lot of leaders who are like, yeah, I'm out. You know, I'm going to go pack boxes for a living or something that doesn't require this level of, of difficulty or detail cars or whatever you want to do. 
right? How, how do you stay in the game and how do you, how do you just not say, I'm not going to go there anymore? Yeah. Well, I do want to, when I, I haven't talked to David and I'm a big David fan, I think Barnes is doing great work. I want to know if we know what that compares to in prior years. Cause I will tell you, yeah. depending on when you ask me for 20 years, significantly I say, higher. I can't tell it's you going the exact higher. Okay. Stats. Significantly okay. higher. Okay, good. That's what I was wondering. And I'm not surprised because, hmm. um, I, and I think next year is going to be harder. You know, one of the things too, there's, you know, you've probably talked about this in somewhere along the way, you know, pastors tend to leave a church after a building program. It's kind of an old urban legend. I think there's truth to it. And the reason is they sort of get the church to the other side and they're tired and like, I'm done. Well, I think the pandemic is going to feel like a building program to a lot of pastors. I think they're going to get the, <laughs> the church to the other side. And I think a lot of people are going to step away from the ministry. So, yeah. Um, I, I do think that we need to, we're, this is one of the reasons we partnered together to create the resilient church leadership strategy that we, we've launched with several ministries. We think it's, uh, you know, Church United, South Florida has helped us, um, you know, uh, Pastor Serve, Soul Care, and we've kind of come together to say, uh, we need reservoirs of resilience. So I think ultimately, um, to answer your question, uh, my advice would be, that you're going to have to become accustomed to not receiving the level of affirmation that you've received in the past and instead seeing some of that shift to a level of criticism and you're going to have to get used to it. Now, you ask the question, how do I do that? So mm. part of the weird thing, and you experience this as well. Now, you're not – you don't necessarily engage on cultural controversial issues sometimes. And I will tell you, you know, that article on President Trump uh, and evangelicals got me a lot of hate mail. But the vitriol of my article saying Oral Roberts University, um, you know, shouldn't be canceled from the uh, NCAA tournament was actually much more aggressive and threatening mm -hmm. and more. Uh, so part of, but part of what happens is, you know, both you and I have sort of um, emerged into our different lanes in the last decade, and yeah. yours. I mean, you're just, I mean, just amazing. All the places I see you, and just, just God's just blessing and favor has been so neat to see on your life and ministry. Um, and not, you know, it's not as controversial a space, but 10 years ago, when we started these, you, you know, I would see each other at some national platforms 10, 15 years ago, social media wasn't as big a thing. So we'd get criticized. Somebody might send a letter or more, but as our ministries became more impactful, as our voice grew, social media grew with it. So I, when I, when I, um, I'd sit, I sat down with a colleague recently um, who just really – Esau McCauley is his name, and he's here at the Wheaton College uh, uh, grad school. And, and so he's now just suddenly emerged. His book, Reading While Black, he's a New York Times columnist. And for me, I've had 10 years, 2007, start speaking nationally. And by 2010, some tweets are critical. And by the time you get to 2020 and you've had 10 years that your platform is sort of – grown with social media, you're sort of used to it. So, yeah. so I don't, you know, I just let, I let it ride. And when I hire somebody new, I recently hired a person who works with me in social media. And I said to her, you need to just know it gets really crazy sometimes and it just blows up. And sometimes for something, sometimes something bizarre. Um, you know, I remember I, I said one thing once, um, I was talking to Donna, Donna, my wife, and I said, you know, a lot of pastors, they just always say, this is my wife, and they never say her name. And yeah, it's yeah. like, so her identity is my wife. And I said, you know, so I tweeted and said, listen, why don't you just, let me encourage you pastors, say your wife's name and introduce her. And and it just becomes like, it gets conservative, social media picks it up and is like, and like million follower conservative women on Twitter 
are saying, I am honored when my husband calls me his wife. I'm like, wait, did I, did I, did I miss <laughs> did I what that? I said? To, did I, and I look back and I'm like, no, that's anyway. But you know, it just, it just happens. But you sort of like, you shrug and you kind of go on. So the thing I got to warn people is when a colleague sort of emerges into this is that um, it's vicious. It's just mm. vicious. And, you know, been friends with Beth Moore for a few years. We've sort of walked through some of these things together. Beth and I text each other when we want to tweet things and we text each other instead. And it's uh, it's some, <laughs> it's a way of coping, but it gets us. You need a friend like that. Like you that. do need a friend like that. So what I would say is for me, um, I don't, that doesn't bother me at all. When somebody in a relationship bother, you know, has a conflict with me, that actually bothers me. I'm like, oh man, what do I need to do to fix this? And, but you know, some person on social media did just, you know, I've never met before. And then 10,000 people, I actually had one day where 10,000 people tweeted me. So that's when the scopes created that, that article about, mm. I said scopes and I meant Snopes. I think I said Snopes earlier. Yeah, no, earlier you said too. Snopes earlier. Oh, did I say Snopes earlier? Okay. So, so that's why, so, so, you know, that, that day, 10,000 people, I just put the phone down and didn't come back to it. It's all you can do. How do you, how do you decide when to engage your critics and when not to? I like to retweet my critics. Is that wrong? So that's not, so I, I will, uh, particularly, I just sometimes like to retweet them. I like, let's, you know, particularly if they have two reasons, sometimes they're valid critiques and I retweet it. And, 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 but I don't, so what happened to me is, is I stopped responding because it never gets anywhere now. So maybe once a week, it does it. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. So, so there's always a follow-up to the question and I don't know who has the time to just spend all day. Like it's basically every tweet turns into an ask me anything. And so for me, I don't generally respond. So sometimes I see like one of my staff will say, you know, I think people have, a lot of people have a question about what you meant here. And then I'll say, okay, well, let me put a follow-up tweet, you know, kind of attached to that, that goes from there. But by and large, I, I think I think you have to realize, and this is, people will probably take this out of context and maybe make a tweet out of it. I think most people are not having good faith conversation on social media anymore. And if that's the case, it's not my responsibility to answer every question asked in bad faith. Now, there are some questions asked in good faith, but the challenge is, is that then you start responding which are not. So if we've kind of meet, reached the tipping point on Twitter where it's mostly bad faith, um, I'm just not going to spend my time trying to. And it's been interesting to watch. Tim Keller has recently just decided that he's going to respond to things on Twitter. And I'm I'm cheering them on, but I'm just not seeing that it's it's persuading anybody. It's you know it's 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 tricky. So whereas Facebook's a little different, you know, because Facebook is um, you know Twitter's just toxic. Twitter toxic. Uh, mm. Instagram's all happy people. You know everyone. Yeah, loves Instagram's Facebook. mostly happy. Facebook's become a lot angrier in the last year. I've noticed. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that's fascinating, Ed. I had like a million more questions, but I think this is a really good place to leave it because we're going to have you back again. And um, anything else you want to share with leaders? It's been a really refreshing, surprising, I hope helpful and healing conversation. That's the kind of conversation I'd love to bring. And I, I totally echo what you're saying. I'm going to say 98% of the, the tens of thousands of people listening to this episode actually want to do what you say. They're yeah. reasonable people. Um, 
Some of them might have different political views. Some of them maybe got fooled. I've been fooled politically before. Talk to me about an election in the 1990s in Canada. One day, I'll tell you how I got totally taken in by somebody. So, I mean, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not not even making a comment on that with the 2020 election, 2016 election. But, you know, we want to broker dialogues. And I can imagine people sending this out to their board or their staff going, can we have more conversations like this? Because I, I hope we have more conversations like this because somehow if we do and we listen to each other, and this isn't a round table, we don't have a whole bunch of voices and different opinions and that kind of thing around. But I, I just, I really appreciate the dialogue, really appreciated your voice and uh, really appreciate, appreciate the, the way that you figure out how to comment in a way that is kind of, I think, a prophetic voice into the moment we're in. So I just want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. And I would just say that um, as Christian leaders, uh, it's not a time to get discouraged, though recognizing discouragement is the normal response to this. You know, again, I talked about resilience, courage, and filter. You know, those those three things I think will will help us. But one of the things for me, you know, as I began to think through the cultural convulsion and, um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine – the stress of being alive in 1968. It was far more than, oh. than 2020 and 2021. It is ironic that, you know, when they had a pandemic, instead of shutting everything down, they had Woodstock. So, you know, people responded differently <laughs> to pandemics in the past. Um, but what I would say is, Great. Great. is I'm as a person who's really concerned that, and again, I recognize you have a broad audience, but let me just talk about for, for what, with yeah, the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, we're deeply concerned that women and men will respond to the good news of the gospel by grace and through faith and become followers of Jesus. And I do believe that fall 2021 could be a great season of people responding to the good news of the gospel, that in the midst of the cultural tumult and turbulence, they might see that they need something that we would call a rock that is sure, that is Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf. And so what I would just encourage Christian leaders, your main audience, what I encourage Christian leaders to do is to tether them to tether themselves to something eternal that is in Christ, in in Him, walking in the power of His Holy Spirit, and yes, recognize that we may need relationships and support in a way we didn't before. You need elders who are going to walk alongside with you if you're a pastor. You may need to strengthen your family relationships. You need to find other pastors to be in community with because it's going to get harder, and you need that reservoir resilience. And also we need courage, you know, build some bridges with visible minorities or people of color so that when someone sends you another video, this is what happens in the U.S. Everyone sends to the same same five people that they think you should listen to on issues of race um, and rather talk to some African-American or some visible minorities in Canada and say, what is your lived experience, particularly if they're followers of Jesus? And that'll help you grow that courage because then, you know, when I when I speak up on issues of race, I'm thinking about my pastor friends like John Jenkins uh, and or or James Meeks or or Michael Henderson are in a cohort that we have together, and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm I, I, they tell me something is wrong, and I believe them, and so that's where courage can come from is some of those relationships, and then that filter, um, be wise, steward your voice. I, I think that I'm I think I'm stewarding my voice. I have people who will say to me, Ed, you're not stewarding in this way. You need to pull back or speak more. Um, steward your voice, and you'll probably do that in community with others. Talk to your elders if you're a pastor. Talk to your board uh, and others. Uh, and maybe you might have to nudge them to have more courage, but at the same time, listen to them so that you can walk forward 
together. I'm not discouraged. Now, to be fair, you know, I've read the end of the book and Jesus wins. So I'm always just <laughs> encouraged at any Good news opportunity. Coming, guys. Yeah. Exactly. But what I would say is, is let's let's walk through these next few years together. We're gonna need each other. And if my words enraged you in this podcast, um, it's okay. Uh, hopefully we have a common faith and that common faith puts us on a common mission and uh, I'm on the same team as everyone who names the name of Jesus and wants to change the world for him. So thanks thanks for the opportunity to come be on the program. Hey, this made me a lot more hopeful and uh, gave me hope. And, and I really do agree that we are seeing the extremes that are amplified again and again. We live in an age where the enraged tweet now makes the news cycle. You know, it's it's bizarre territory for sure. And I think the vast majority of people are somewhere in the moderate zone, moderately right, moderately left, moderately this, moderately that. And um, and we can and should get along a lot better than we do. So thanks for making it uh, making it a great conversation. Ed, people, uh, I know tons of people follow you, but if um, they want to find you on the socials and where you hang out these days, where's the easiest place to do that, Ed? Yeah, probably like you, I have an unusual name. So at Ed Stetzer is on all the on all the Twitters and the social networks and uh, and edstetzer.com is easy to find me there as well. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for everything you're doing. One day we're going to talk about the future. We're going to talk about your productivity. <laughs> One of the questions I had for you is, how do you get it all done, dude? Anyway, great team. that's have a great time. Ah, uh, yeah. Ed, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was a lot, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, I do hope that was clarifying. I hope it was illuminating. I have a degree in history. That was my my first um, degree in university. And I think sometimes what history does is historians give you perspective on things you couldn't see in the moment. And I hope that a few decades down the road, you know, as people look back, they'll look at this era and go, wow, what was that? And hopefully um, this helps a little bit and at least gives you perspective. Whether you agree or disagree, I'm going to talk a little bit about the one thing that should characterize every leader in the What I'm Thinking About segment. And if you want more, there are show notes and transcripts. If you want to talk about this with your team for free, you can just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 426. Next episode, switching gears, we have Allison Fallon. And she has helped CEOs, Olympic gold medalists, politicians, and many more unlock their brains and leadership by learning how to write things down. It sounds so simple, but it was a fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt. 20 minutes a day for four days in a row spent expressive writing can dramatically improve your mood. It can also improve your immune system. When they did uh, uh, studies around this, they saw that the control group visited the doctor 50% less often for up to six months after the study ended for upper respiratory infections and flu, meaning that their, their immune systems were actually functioning better because they had written regularly for four days in a row for 20 minutes at a time. So, you know, if we just boil this down to the very simplest version of this, it means that every six months, if you stopped for four days in a row, so for part of a week, and you sat down for 20 minutes on each of those days, and you wrote your deepest thoughts and feelings about what was going on in your life, you could see an improved mood, an improved immune system. The data also shows increased uh, levels of happiness in romantic relationships, the data shows people are more empathetic. It shows they're happier with their jobs. They get paid more. I mean, I could go on and on and on about the kind of benefit that people receive from entering into this process of writing. Also coming up, Amy Edmondson on psychological safety. Chris Hodges talks about depression and a really tough season he went through. We also have Louis Giglio, Pete Scazzaro, uh, Kendra Adachi, Chris McChesney from the Four Disciplines of Execution, 
Horst Schultze, Scott O'Neill, CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and New Jersey Devils, and a whole lot more coming up for you. And uh, yeah, we, we are really excited about what's ahead. And thank you for sharing the show. Thanks for leaving ratings and reviews. And thanks for everything you're doing um, in leadership. We just come alongside you, try to bring you fascinating conversations with the best people we know uh, to help you thrive in your leadership. So I think there's one thing in the What I'm Thinking About segment I want to talk about, and that's basically how to lead in this hyper-polarized era. I want to thank our partners for making this segment possible. Thank you to World Vision. If you haven't checked out Right Side Up Soul Care with Danielle Strickland, go to worldvision.org slash carry. And ProMedia Fire will give you 10% off your first year of complete social media management if you go to promediafire.com slash carry. So I'm thinking about leading with love. I don't always get it right. I get it wrong sometimes. I'm an Enneagram 8. Love is a discipline sometimes for me. Um, but I've also read scripture enough and believe it deeply enough to know that the mark that would define every authentic follower of Jesus and leader is love. Love would be the proof to the world that we are Jesus followers, and I'm a Jesus follower. So uh, now I think the challenge with that is, as a people, we kind of break down into two categories of people, truth people and grace people. Truth people tend to stand up for what's right. They don't compromise. They get loud. They get angry. Grace people, they're about love and relationship, and they feel for others. They don't want to rush to judgment. They don't want to sacrifice a relationship for the sake of a disagreement. The truth people, and I tend to be more a truth person, believe it or not, outside of my spiritual disciplines, I can be a truth person. I can be harsh. Um, Truth people think the grace people have no spine and the grace people think the truth people have no heart. But the reality is that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He never spoke the truth without speaking it gracefully and he never displayed grace in a way that compromised the truth, as in never. And that leads us here. Truth isn't truth without grace, and grace isn't grace without truth. So they have to be tethered together. So how do you do that? Here are five principles that have guided me. And and again, on my good days, I get them right. On my bad days, mm, well, at least we get another chance tomorrow. But number one, just try this. Think more of others than you think of yourself. Uh, I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. You've probably heard it a thousand times, but humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less often. So just think more of others than you think of yourself. That's actually deeply scriptural. And if I think of you more than I think of myself, I'm going to be a better leader. Uh, That also helps you die to yourself and you can begin to live in love. Second thing, and man, our culture needs this so badly, speak well of people publicly and deal with disagreements privately and directly. It pains me deeply when people just decide to pick fights with each other online and there's no private dialogue. That drives me crazy. And even if you got a private dialogue going, why would you pick a fight publicly? I don't understand that. So speak well of people publicly and deal with disagreements privately and directly. Third, Disagree without being disagreeable. We've done whole episodes on this. We had Scott Sauls and Sarah Anderson on last year. Um, You know, you can disagree without being disagreeable. Just you don't have, otherwise, here's what you do. You just build a whole army of people who think exactly like you do. And that is hyper dangerous, reinforcing confirmation bias. And you don't want to do that. And And then the fourth is take the high road. I know it's a cliche, but looking back over your life, you probably never regretted taking the high road, not once. The high road is never the easy road, but it is the best road. And you probably know what the high road is. You're like, yeah, I know, I know. I don't want to do it, but I know. Well, take it. Take the high road. You never regret doing that. And then number five, serve those you lead. One of the best questions you can ask as a leader, and ask this of your team, ask this of the people you lead, how can I help you? 
How can I help you? How can I help you? And uh, that will get you into a posture where you are worried less about serving yourself and more about serving others. So hopefully that helps with leadership. I think whether you lead in the business context or the church context, my goodness, if you begin to really embrace principles like this, uh, we move ourselves into a new era and I think we need a new era. Hey, really hope this helps. Back with a fresh episode next time. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.